Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. In this episode, we are going to hear from author and historian Amity Schles, who exposed for all to see the grave injustices and profoundly un-American behavior of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal administration. What's stark about Schles's presentation is not just the case study of how a federal government drunk with newly arrogated power and unable to let a good crisis go to waste can clamp down on the little guy, in this case an immigrant small business owner who barely spoke English, and make his life a living hell. What really stands out is how small the step from promoting the common good to engaging in tyrannical behavior, what one British author called the honeymoon with America's benevolent dictator, can be. The American right wing, long defined by its unflinching opposition to social engineering, expansion of federal power, and central planning, even for the greater good, is now embroiled in serious arguments over the proper role of the state, especially the federal government, in directing a still capitalist economy towards some higher good. Like FDR, today's common good capitalists insist that work is a primary goal of public policy and unemployment is the enemy. Like FDR, among these reformers, certain kinds of competition are more welcome than others, based largely upon citizens' obligations to the nation. And like FDR, these common good capitalists ignore at their own risk the problem of diffuse and vast knowledge, the potential for unintended consequences for freedom, economic health, and the maintenance of a proper relationship between citizen and state is large. The line between benevolent dictatorship and a fundamentally free but heavily compelled economic sphere may be blurrier than it first appears, and the slide from promoting the common good to crushing the common man is easier than you might think. The tale of Martin Schechter and the National Recovery Administration is a case in point. As Tevye the Dairyman once said, when the federal government arrests you over a chicken, one of them is sick. Well, something like that in any case. Here's Amity Schlaze's 2004 Bradley Lecture, Mr. Mellon and Mr. Schechter, the New Deal and Class Warfare. One June day in 1934, a chicken wholesaler named Martin Schechter received a call at his slaughterhouse in Brooklyn. The visitor, a government inspector named Philip Alampi, carried a notebook and a pencil and went about the slaughterhouse posing questions, lots of questions. He stayed days and no topics seemed too small for him. He asked things such as how customers extracted chickens from the coop or what was involved when a customer opted to purchase less than half a coop's worth of chickens or what happened if a chicken was sick. Was it always disposed of? Did not some bad chickens get sold to retailers? The investigator was also interested in the fact Schechter and his brothers had allowed a retail butcher, one Sam Tanowitz of Church Avenue, Brooklyn, to select the chickens that he purchased and even reject healthy hens when he chose. Martin Schechter tried to go along, both when Alampi visited and then later when other inspectors arrived. But in the end, Martin did not respond positively to Alampi's queries. According to court documents, he at least at one point used threatening, coercive, and intimidating language with Alampi. He may even, although this was disputed, have called Alampi a son of a bitch. 
Nor was the reaction of Martin's brothers to a lampy much better. Aaron and Alexander Schechter responded to the question, which what was later called vile language. What's more, it was later alleged the immigrant family set about preventing said Alampi from performing his duties on behalf of Washington. Thus, with a squabble beside a chicken coop, began the case that defined both the ambitions and the limits of the New Deal. ALA Schechter Poultry is a familiar name to us. We know of it for the legal precedence. We have learned that it was an important test of the Constitution's Commerce Clause, which limits the authority of Washington to regulate business in the states. We know it as a test of the principle of delegation, whether Congress actually can delegate to the president certain powers. In law schools, Schechter is called the sick chicken case. This is a reference to one of the charges that the Schechters sold sick chickens. In most school book histories of the Great Depression, Schechter is treated as important, albeit mostly in the context of FDR's presidency. This was the lawsuit, the books tell us, that inconvenienced President Roosevelt. It embarrassed him and drove him to his unwise plot to pack the Supreme Court. But there was another important thing about Schechter. It was that it represented one of the first manifestations of an assumption that would become commonplace in American life, both throughout the Depression and long after FDR passed from the scene. That was the assumption that in times of trouble, the federal government, or perhaps the government and industry together, are the best agent for fixing the economy, especially at points when the economy is undergoing a big, frightening, paradigmatic change, a shift from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing one in that instance. And that this unique and crucial mission justifies a government with special rights, including the right to stick its hand into every corner of business, even into the coop of a chicken seller. The law that sent the investigator to the Schechter store was the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA. Roosevelt signed it into existence a year to the month before. Uh, before Lampy's visits at a happy session marking the final hours of the New Deal's first hundred days. The principle of the act was that the Depression was a new war and must be treated as such. The war attitude showed up in the aggressive opening language of the law, which seemed to dare anyone to contradict it. A national emergency productive of widespread unemployment and disorganization of industry, which burdens interstate and foreign commerce, affects the public welfare and undermines the standards of the living of American people, is hereby declared to exist. A national emergency is declared to exist. The goal was, as FDR declared, to put several million people back to work, both by creating jobs directly and fostering growth generally. To do this, the act did two things. The first was to create the Federal Administration of Public Works, the PWA, which generated work through the construction of bridges, dams, various other public projects. One of the first PWA projects was New York's Triborough Bridge, whose construction chicken trade people, like the Schechters, doubtless witnessed as they carted their fowl about the city. The second part of the act was more ambitious. It created an agency designed to foster growth generally, to cheerlead and corral business folks back to higher prices and prosperity. This was the NRA. 
What most of us or our parents or grandparents remember about the NRA was its symbol, the blue eagle. The eagle was supposed to cheerlead business. Shops that conformed to NRA rules got a blue eagle to hang in their windows. In keeping with his war theme, FDR hired a flamboyant general and author of children's books, Hugh Johnson, to run the NRA. Uh, Think of Ross Perot. General Johnson set up camp in the Department of Commerce. He started with 87 employees and expanded rapidly from there. By the next year, the NRA already employed 1,555 people. Quite an amount of job creation all by itself. Of course, everyone in Washington had had a different idea of what Washington could do to shock the economy awake to produce those millions of jobs. One idea was that growth would come if everyone recognized that big was good and that standardization was good and that top-down was better than bottom-up and that thinking of the little guy was an old-fashioned habit and a waste of time. Many New Dealers were inspired by Frederick Taylor, the efficiency guru, who taught that in the past, man had been first. In the future, the system will be first. This was also the period when Charlie Chaplin was making Modern Times. So you know what people were thinking about it. They had mixed feelings. The second popular idea was that partnership between government and business, especially larger business, could yield new efficiency. Industry could and would regulate itself in partnership with government. Next, again, after going after efficiency, antitrust principles should be relaxed. Competition, after all, was bad because it was inherently wasteful, so it must be regulated intensely. One of the problems of the Depression was deflation. Prices kept falling. Many people believed that a good way to stop that trend was to make it illegal for firms to cut prices. Firms ought to be prohibited from destructive price cutting. That was the phrase. On top of all this, there was a labor component. The young labor movement argued that any legislation should create the right to organize, bargain collectively. People also thought it was time to end child labor. Maybe, too, it was time to establish a minimum wage. So many of these ideas contradicted one another, and many contradicted even what FDR had said in his political campaign, his run for president. Still, now they all went into the NRA law with the part about government and private sector as partners dominating. The law asked industries to write codes for their members. Leaders of the industries would then bring the code to the president, who in turn would sign it, and that would give it the force of law. The legislation paid lip service to helping entrepreneurs, but it favored big firms. Gerard Swope of General Electric and Harold Harriman, the president of the Chamber of Commerce, were two big NRA boosters. The NRA created a national bureaucracy on a huge scale. Within a year, there were 485 codes and 95 supplements that had been approved by the president. 10,000 pages of law had been created, a figure that had to be compared with the mere 2,735 that comprised federal statute law. In other words, the NRA, in less than a year, had generated more paper than the entire legislative output of the federal government from 1789 to that day. Nonetheless, people were at first more than willing to go along. The situation was dire. The economy had shrunk to half its size. 
from 1929. One in four workers, maybe even more, was unemployed. New York faced losses. New York poultry faced losses. That industry had declined steadily since the crash. By 1933, it was down 40%. Nationally, when the authorities told people that supply and demand no longer worked, the people believed them. The NRA might be an experiment, but it was the best thing going and deserved unconditional support. And this was probably, at least initially, also the attitude of the Schecters of East 52nd Street and Rockaway Avenue. The name Schecter actually means butcher in Yiddish. It derives from the Yiddish or Hebrew word for the same thing, shachet. For centuries before Martin and his brothers worked in Brooklyn, both terms were used to describe those qualified to perform ritual slaughter or slaughter of animals as required under Jewish dietary law. The 1930 census shows that Schechter's parents, David and Molly, came from Poland. Sam, Alex, and Aaron, as well as some sisters, were born in Hungary, maybe in transit, to the U.S., the family mother tongue was Yiddish. The boys did not speak English perfectly, and they were self-conscious about it. David, the father, gave his profession as rabbi to the census worker, who then described his workplace as church. This, after all, was a period when Americanization went Christianization. In those days, too, the term rabbi had a looser meaning than it does today. Still, that rabbi on the census meant that the Schechters would run a religious house and a religious business. At their workplace, they, they employed rabbis. They had Jewish ritual slaughters. These workers observed the Sabbath. They halted work on Friday afternoon, and they returned only after sundown on Saturday. In a shop such as the Schechters, the retailers would come and pick their chicken and watch the slaughter. That selection was part of Jewish tradition from the days of the marketplace in East Europe and the shtetl. It was a form of consumer oversight. Kashru, Jewish dietary law, said that unhealthy chickens, chickens with lesions, broken wings, other problems, had to be discarded. Kashru was, in essence, its own health code, albeit a medieval one. This was the era before penicillin, and humans could get tuberculosis from animals. Everyone in Brooklyn knew somebody who had died from tuberculosis, so good work by the slaughterers mattered a lot. Politics. Of course, they were Democrats. <coughs> Jewish immigrants had experienced life under a random, inconsistent despot or a czar, a Habsburg empire. They left, this, this left them with a natural sympathy for the underdog, and they considered the New Deal a project to help the underdog. In 1933, the year before Am- Alampi arrived at Schechter Poultry, a Brooklyn rabbi, Israel Leventhal, preached to his followers they must heed the NRA, for the NRA speaks to us in the spirit of the words which Moses spoke to the Israelites. In this scenario, Roosevelt was Moses. Jews in the chicken business would fear and honor the Blue Eagle and avoid showing it disrespect. The specific body of NRA regs that applied to the Schechters and which Alampi was seeking to enforce was known as the Code of Fair Competition for the Live Poultry Industry of the Metropolitan Area in and about the city of New York. It was transmitted to the president April 10, 1934, or just before the Schechter investigation got underway. It was typical of all the codes in a number of ways. Its premise was that industry's problem was too many unfair kinds of competition and evil and abuses resulting from uncontrolled methods of doing business. 
It limited the work week to 40 hours or 48 in some cases. It imposed a minimum wage of 50 cents. It banned sale of sick chickens. Finally, the code also prohibited anything other than straight killing. Straight killing, what's that? This was defined as killing on the basis of official grade. What it meant was that customers could not be picky. They could not pick their bird in the old marketplace way. They might select a coop or a half a coop of chickens for purchase, but they did not have the right to make any selection of a particular bird. The longer the inspectors investigated and hung around collecting the affidavits, the bleaker the thing seemed to the Schechters. It became obvious that the government had first decided to prosecute and then worked up an investigation. The investigators were simply too energetic and too well prepared for to be otherwise. A friend of theirs had heard that the poultry code officials were after them. That friend later testified he had heard the officials say, we are going to get an indictment and convict the Schechter brothers and there will be a whip over it. The Schechter's concern grew when they next heard from the Justice Department. It grew yet again when they heard the name of the government attorney involved, Walter Lyman Rice. They knew Walter Lyman Rice. From an older racketeering case, he had won against the chicken industry, the live poultry industry. Then he had forced the Schechter family to be witnesses, um, corroborating witnesses, and now he was targeting them. At some point, they and their lawyer began to realize that the NRA meant to use them as a model to defend its own legitimacy, which was being contested in the courts. By July, just a few weeks later, a grand jury indicted the Schechters on not one or two, but 60 counts. Among the charges were criminal ones, which meant they would not only have to pay fines if convicted, but also go to jail. Among the charges were that they had threatened violence against agents and inspectors, a lampy, others, that they had violated NRA code involving hours and pay. The prosecutors said they had violated code rules about picking chickens. This was the straight killing issue. That is, they had indeed allowed the customers to pick their chickens. And last of all came the charge that the brothers knowingly, willfully, and unlawfully sold for human consumption an unfit chicken to one Harry Strauber. This was the key sick chicken allegation. Finally, in this uh, escalated matters, the government charged that they had engaged in conspiracy to violate the NRA code. To the investigators and prosecutors, the Schechters seem like an easy mark, and it is clear in retrospect why. To kill a chicken, you cut off its head. Their business was the literal embodiment of the thing the NRA was designed to suppress, cutthroat competition. <laughs> the brothers worked in a very, it was a filthy business, to live poultry. Workers were up to their elbows in blood. They swore inappropriately. They were contentious to the point of comedy, fighting with one another. Joseph Schechter at one time said in court of his brothers, I wish I had never known them. (laughs) They contradicted themselves. They spoke to anyone and everyone, occasionally incriminating themselves unintentionally. They were riffraff. Surely they would lose the trial. It took place just on the Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn Bridge in the courtroom of Judge Marcus B. Campbell. The judge was a Republican and probably an opponent of the New Deal, but that did not make things easier for the Schechters. He told them the law was the law and not his to decide. What's more, Judge Campbell himself was a member of the New York establishment, belonging wherever it seemed possible to belong, from the Brooklyn Club to the Union League Club to the Mason and the Order of Odd Fellows. He had been appointed by the Republican President Harding, had been an active Republican in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn before his appointment to the bench. 
Campbell was of Brooklyn, like the Schechters, but his Brooklyn might have been the Brooklyn of another planet. It was so different. There was also a social gap between the Schechters and the New Dealers who litigated on behalf of the executive branch. The Schechters lawyer was their old friend Joe Heller, a graduate of Brooklyn Law School, Jewish like them. The columnist Drew Pearson described Heller as a little hawk-nosed Jewish lawyer with a Brooklyn Hebrew accent. Rice was a Harvard Law graduate. He and his colleagues repeatedly used terms, meek, the word meek, for example, with which the Schechters were not familiar. The government team intimidated the brothers. Overall, you want to sort of imagine a sort of Elliot Ness, Al Capone situation. Rice and his team are the American untouchables wearing the blue eagle on their breasts. The Schechters are the corrupt ethnic racketeers. And that was also how the press played it at the time. Nonetheless, if you go back and review the actual testimony from the trial, another picture emerges. It is a picture of small businessmen trying to restrain themselves out of loyalty to the New Deal and out of fear of prison. But still, nonetheless, finding that they cannot resist disputing crazy economic assumptions and theories. What the prosecutors were trying to make out to be criminal, the lowering of prices, for example, the Schechters argued was simple reality. Another exchange. Prosecutor. Your price is not very stable, is it? Martin Schechter, the market isn't stable. It might be 15 cents today, the market quotation, tomorrow 18. We got our prices according to what the market might be. Or, prosecutor, you are in very keen competition with your competitors. Schechter, I do not understand the question. Prosecutor, prosecutor, do you know what competition means, Mr. Schechter? I do. Prosecutor, there is a lot of competition between you and your competitors, is there not? Schechter, there is a lot of competition in every other business, the same thing. Prosecutor, yes, and the competition in the whole slaughterhouse business is very keen, is it not? Schechter, well, it is keen in every other business in the same way. (laughs) It wasn't merely the word keen that Schechter had trouble with. Rice was saying the economy must operate one way because of the law. The Schechters were saying it could not be. At one point, prosecutors browbeat Louis Spatz, a witness for the Schechters. They sought to intimidate him into conceding that the NRA officials must know better than he, an immigrant in the trade. And they made fun of his English. Prosecutor. You are not an expert. Spats, I am experienced, but not an expert. Prosecutor, you are not an expert. Spats, I am not an expert about anything. Prosecutor, you have not studied agricultural economics. Spats, no, sir. Or any other kind of economics. None, none, very little. What is your education? None, very little. You have not studied economics at all? (laughs) Spats, gaining confidence. In my business, I am the best economist. (laughs) In my business, I am the best economizer. Prosecutor, you are the best economizer. I wish to have that word spelled in the minutes just as he stated it. Spats, humbled. I do not know how to spell. After the Schechters lost and were moved off to cells in the building, their sense of injustice grew. They were like spats, not educated, but experienced. They and their commission men and their customers, the housewives on 
Belmont Avenue who got their chickens, the pushcart operators who sold to them, all engaged in economics every day. All Brooklyn at that time was one big haggle. And that haggle was the living proof of the impossibility of running an economy through codes. Economics had its own laws, the laws of chicken blood, competition, and profit. In addition, I should mention there was something else that probably bothered the Schechters. It was the sick chicken charge. After all, they observed Jewish dietary law by charging that their slaughterhouse and its religious workers were selling sick chickens. The authorities were therefore doing either one of two things. A, they were saying that the Schechters were failing to follow Jewish dietary law, or B, assuming that Jewish law was not up to the NRA government standard. Either one of these things was the sort of charge that would infuriate any one of the many live poultry wholesalers in Brooklyn. The NRA and its poultry code had raised the Schechter's costs through regulation. It had caused them to lose custom. It threatened their livelihood, but it had also done something worse than all the other things. It had offended their dignity. What was also becoming clear in this period was that the NRA was failing. The moody General Johnson resigned. Across the nation, thousands of Schechters were discovering that the codes and the enforcement of them hurt. There might be value in the inspiration of the Blue Eagle. There had been something of an upturn, perhaps, in the months following the NRA's inauguration, but the undiscussed damage down at the bottom was offsetting gains. For starters, there was the minimum wage that the Schechters had been, uh, had been investigated on. That was turning out to be an enormous problem. At a time when you have 25% unemployment, and businesses were hurting, they could scarcely afford to increase wages up to the minimum wage. In the end, many had no choice but to reduce staff, thereby generating the very sort of unemployment the NRA was meant to alleviate. A Connersville, Indiana woman wrote a sort of Schechterish letter to President Roosevelt. I have been employed as a clerk at E.J. Schlichte Company, this city, for seven years, five months, until the NRA came into effect. They let me out, said they couldn't pay that 14 a week. When the NRA went into effect, I was so happy I had planned to lay in some coal and pay on some bills I owe. I guess I was too happy. Then there was another problem. The corporatist culture of the codes gave bigger businesses such an advantage that smaller ones were dying. People saw this and were angry. In 1935, the year the Supreme Court heard Schechter, a new board game outsold all others in the country. The name of that board game was Monopoly. <laughs> Officials at the NRA received 3,375 complaints about the agency. Clarence Darrow, the attorney, led a group in evaluating the NRA for Roosevelt. Darrow concluded it must be attacked. He called the NRA not the foe, but the adjunct of depression. In the same period, a famous right-wing think tank embarked on the definitive evaluation of the NRA's effects. The think tank produced a study of nearly a 1,000 pages on the question of employment. It found the NRA did create work when it came to job sharing, perhaps as many as 1.75 million new nominal jobs. This explained a small drop in unemployment, though unemployment was still, mind you, above 20%. But the NRA also reduced the number of man hours worked overall from the level that would have obtained had there been no NRA. In conclusion, the think tank said, the NRA on the whole retarded recovery, and that retarding effect was substantial. 
It was time, the report went on, for the administration to realize that merely dividing a smaller amount of work among more workers is neither recovery nor a good substitute for it. The think tank went so far as to warn apocalyptically that the NRA seems set to substitute centralized authority for what is left of free competitive enterprise. The name of this right-wing think tank was Brookings. <laughs> the arguments before the Supreme Court came soon because the NRA was expiring, and Joe Heller, the Schechter's underdog lawyer, made his arguments. He argued the standard Commerce Clause argument that the chickens were brought by the Schechters at Washington Market in Manhattan and taken over the bridge to Brooklyn and so could not constitute this, this trade, could not constitute interstate commerce. But he also addressed the practical insults that the investigation and the prosecution had been to the Schechters. My client has never assented to this code and he was put out of business by this code, Heller said. And he also, Heller did, gave time to straight killing. Here he also argued not only the unconstitutionality of the NRA code, but its impracticality. In doing so, he took great pains to translate the culture of Jewish poultry markets into the general American culture for the justices. And let us say that John Jones, not Sam Tanowitz, John Jones, for example, comes in and says, I want to buy three chickens weighing five pounds apiece. Under this straight killing provision of the code, we could not sell them to him in that way. The law took away from the consumer his essential right to choose what he was buying. We would have to pick out the first three chickens that came to our hands. It was an exchange between the normally sour Justice McReynolds and Heller that seemed to turn the case. McReynolds wanted to return to the meaning of straight killing, and he started with the chickens. How many are there in a coop? There were 30 to 40, according to the size of the coop. Then when the commission man delivers them to the slaughterhouse, they are in coops. Yes, they were in coops. And if he undertakes to sell them, he must have straight killing? He must have straight killing, yes. As Heller put it, the customer is not permitted to select the ones he wants. He must put his hand in the coop when he buys from the slaughterhouse and take the first chicken that comes to hand. He has to take that. A younger lawyer who was in the courtroom, Thomas Emerson, later tried to convey Heller's effect on the judges. With great flair, he described to the court how if you wanted to buy half a coop, you had to close your eyes and stick your hand in the coop and pull out the first leg that you caught hold of. At this, there was laughter in the court, and it became clear things looked grim for the government. Heller delivered what was probably the death blow to the Blue Eagle. He noted that the only imperfect chicken of all the Schechter product confiscated, examined, or contested in the whole case had turned out not to be unfit at all. Rather, she had had female problems. <laughs> She had been merely egg-bound, an egg or two lodged inside her. The hen, therefore, was not dangerously unhealthy. There, there was no sick chicken in the sick chicken case. The finding against the NRA was unanimous and spectacular on a legal and political level. The justices found the act unconstitutional on several grounds. The first was delegation law, the law the justices had ceded too much authority. In his concurrence, Justice Cardozo warned the NRA was a roving commission to inquire into evils and upon discovery correct them. A roving commission inquiring into evils. You have to imagine what 
how that reverberated in 1933, 34, 35, when he said it, when in Europe... And in Russia, there were roving commissions doing that. And it was a much realer thing. This, Cardozo's most famous condemnation of the NRA came in, in another phrase, though. He called it delegation running riot. Um, as for the famous commerce issue, here the act was also unconstitutional. Justice Hughes said it invades the power reserved exclusively to the states. Perhaps inspired by all the talk of poultry, Cardozo reached for a butcher metaphor when he found the codes were wrong. He said a code collapses utterly with bone and sinew gone. <laughs> Hughes assailed the New Deal more generally. Extraordinary conditions such as an economic crisis, may call for extraordinary remedies, but they cannot create or enlarge constitutional power. It always a terrible blow to Roosevelt. We hear about it as Black Monday. An English paper, the London Express, summed up, America stunned, Roosevelt's work killed in 20 minutes. The president was so angry, he spoke to the press on the topic for a full 5,000 words, or as long as I am speaking to you tonight. He said the commerce decision took the nation back to the horse and buggy stage, and he likened it to the court's finding uh, in the infamous Dred Scott opinion before the Civil War. Thus, by the way, he was comparing himself to Lincoln. But anyhow, these fireworks, which to us are familiar from our books, obscure something else. It is law school heresy, perhaps, to say it, but it was also clear the justices found it easy to be sympathetic to the Schecters because the NRA broke the laws of common sense. After the opinions were handed down, Justice Brandeis, and this is a famous anecdote, called Tommy Corcoran, FDR's lawyer, into the roving rooms, and he told Corcoran to take a message to the president. He said to tell him that this business of centralization had gone too far. The reason I tell this very long story this evening is that the Schechter side of this famous case is so often lost, and with it the scale of the NRA transgression, when it came, its failures when it came to creating growth, that people in the 1930s might overlook those failings was reasonable. After all, you could argue that these steps were emergency steps, steps to prevent Germany, Russia. What's more, in the Depression, they needed a leader to cling to, and that leader was FDR. Even the ambivalent Schecters continued to feel that loyalty. One of them told the New York Times at election time in 1936 that all 16 members of the Schecter family were voting for Roosevelt. Still, that does not mean that we have to overlook the failings. Now that we are not in a depression, we cannot treat it as though it was an economic good, the NRA. Yet often we tend to, we say, it was misguided, but it did some good. That's what year. It was misguided, but it did some good. In the context of this current economy and this election year, 2004, there are at least two ways I thought of just even in writing this uh, this piece that Schechter illuminates. Uh, the first is to remind us that we should beware of people who tell us that the old economic laws no longer work. The Brains Trust were people burning with ideas. They were think tank people. The Depression was real but it was also exciting to them because it gave an occasion to try their ideas out. Corporatism, central control, efficiency, you name it. Suddenly it seemed they had the authority to overrule old economics, to damn microeconomics often, and the laws of supply and demand as old-fashioned. 
A similar thing is happening today, albeit in a far smaller scale, at least so far. And I've been writing about this a bit in the Financial Times. Today, the occasion is not a depression, but rather another transition. This time, our transition is from an industrial economy to a service and tech economy. Again, you will see old theory getting attacked. The focus this time has been David Ricardo's old notion of comparative advantage. Comparative advantage says quite simply that every country should make what it makes best and we'll all be better off. Uh, today's argument is that Ricardo did not anticipate the mobility of labor and capital, and so his thoughts about trade and prosperity were wrong. In fact, he did anticipate it, if you go back and look, but that does not matter to people who are making the argument. What they want is to justify action, protectionism, that can get them votes. Just after the New Year, for example, um, Senator Schumer from New York and Paul Craig Roberts wrote in the New York Times that comparative advantage was passé, but their argument was not truly economic at heart. It was only using economics to sell protectionism, and they are not the only ones. Suddenly, among both parties, we find protectionism is more popular than in years, and protectionism, as we know, is in the longer term a job killer. The protectionism was what helped to bring the Depression about. Recently, I actually thought of Schechter in one of the nasty exchanges when I watched the Council of Economic Advisors present the economic report of the president. Greg Mankiw, the CEA head, was like spats. He was testifying on his experience. And Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney of New York was like the NRA lawyers, berating in a very arrogant way Mr. Mankiw for saying a simple economic truth, that productivity is good. It all recalled, recalled Washington's long-ago fierce attack on the Schechter's microeconomics. The second lesson of the Schechter case is that deciding you're going to pass legislation for job creation is a dangerous thing. Because once it gets started, you have no idea where it will end up. There are ideas in the NRA that were okay ideas, even fine ideas. Building dams, strengthening labor's rights. But Schechter shows that once Congress takes up a topic, particularly at a time of national anxiety, especially when people are nervous about the economy, a lot of other stuff gets thrown in the mix. Much of it isn't neutral and can actually be damaging. This is something both candidates in the presidential campaign are going to want to think about. What do you promise and what you promise you have to deliver, at least some of it? But I, I think we should exit as the Schechters did with their Washington victory on an up note. So I will read to you a little ditty of victory composed by Mrs. Schechter after the Supreme Court's decision. No, forgive me. No more excuses to hide our disgrace. With pride and satisfaction, I'm showing my face. For a long, long time to be kept in suspense, sarcastic remarks made at our expense. I'm through with this experience, I hope for all my life, and proud again to be Joseph Schechter's wife. It starts with the individual, with household pride, with household industry, with household dignity. Economies don't grow top-down as much as we might wish it were so. Economies grow from the feathers up. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. 
And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.